Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, we aren't exploring training. Instead, we're learning about ways in which horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses, so becoming better stewards of the land under our care is a win-win-win situation. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. This week, I'm visiting with Navona Gallegos. Navona is a horse person, an ecologist, a soil specialist, who lives in New Mexico. That means she lives in a very beautiful landscape, and one that is completely different from what I am used to. If I wanted to move out to New Mexico with my horses, I would be starting over from scratch in terms of how do you manage horses in this kind of landscape. And that is, in part, why I'm so excited to have the chance to talk with Navona. Not because I'm wanting to move out to New Mexico, but because I think there's a lot to be learned when you look at environments that are very different from the one in which you live and the one in which you're familiar. So it's because we live in such radically different climates that I'm really excited to be sharing this conversation with you. At the end of part one, I was talking about something that happens in my area every year in June. The local farmers bring their big equipment, their big plows onto the fields to prepare them for this year's corn crop. Now, when we're talking fields, if you live in the Midwest, you're imagining fields that go from one horizon line to the other. But where I live, uh, Fields are more like postage stamps, but we still consider them to be sort of large fields of of corn, large by the standards of this area. What I've been driving past all spring, and really enjoy driving past as I drive into town, are fields in which the, the weed seeds have been allowed to germinate. And there's just this beautiful, beautiful mix of herbaceous plants which no doubt the farmers would call weeds. Well, in mid-June, the farmers come onto the fields and plow all of these plants under, along with all the networks of mycorrhizal fungi. And all of this is broken up and, and the ground is prepared for this year's corn crop. And in past years, I might not have thought much about it. This is This is the cycle of the seasons that you expect to see in this area. But I've been learning about alternatives to this kind of farming. And so I'm seeing this process with fresh eyes. So my question to Navona was, what effect does this kind of tilling have on the land? And that's where we'll pick up in this week's conversation. Before that tilling happened the fungi were in a symbiotic relationship with the plant roots 
and they're trading water and micronutrients, which we wouldn't otherwise get. Fungi are really the only ones who give us a lot of those micronutrients for carbohydrates and sugars that the plants give them. And so the fungi are helping the plants grow and then growing their mycelial networks and creating all that structure that allows oxygen and water to go deeper into the soil and creates habitat for all the other soil organisms. So that's kind of what existed before. And then when you till, it's kind of like bulldozing a building. You know, the building has walls and it has rooms and um, structure, and then you drive a bulldozer through it and it all just collapses. And so that's what happens when we till. And a lot of folks think that, oh, if you're tilling, you're bringing, you're aerating the soil, you're getting oxygen deeper. But the thing is, there already was oxygen deeper and it's just in smaller chunks. It's not these big um, chunks that we see when we turn the earth. Right. And, and then what happens is as soon as it rains, since all those mycelial networks, all the strands of fungi have been broken up into little tiny pieces and mostly died, um, and all those building blocks have been sort of tossed asunder and they're all, they're not really connected anymore. And as soon as it rains or someone walks or drives or a horse steps, all of it just collapses. So it's like driving a bulldozer through a building and then all the walls and everything just collapse on each other. And it's this little heap of rubble and it gets really compacted. And so it's actually shooting yourself in the foot to till because we get even more compaction. And that's how a lot of farmers in the last half century have gotten into this cycle of sort of self-defeating cycle of tilling and then having it till deeper and deeper. And there are these, you know, larger and larger tilling implements that get invented that we didn't need a hundred years ago because the compaction is getting even worse because of the tilling. Right. And then we have this amazing network and it's, it's what we're learning more and more about is this association that the mycorrhizal fungi have with plants and um, that, that there is this real partnership that the plants and the fungi have where the, the plants are providing the, the sugars, the, the carbohydrates from the photosynthesis and the fungi are going down and drawing up the water and they're drawing up the micronutrients which feed the plants. And this relationship that we're learning about is just, I mean, it's just so wondrous. So when you, when you plow and you break up that relationship, now you've got a plant that doesn't have, and you put your corn plants in, those corn plants uh, do not, are not going into ground that has a healthy, uh, network of fungus so they're they're not getting the micronutrients so the farmers next come in with their big heavy machines and they put the fertilizer down and they turn the corn plants into couch potatoes because the corn plants don't need to make the associations with the mycorrhizal fungi because the farmers have poured all of this uh, it's like um, pouring junk food um, on, you know, so, so 
uh, we go to our kitchen and open the cupboards and there are all the potato chips and the soda and uh, I don't know what uh, that people feed on, but it doesn't make for healthy people. And now we go to the cornfield and the corn plants are getting the equivalent of potato chips and soda pop. Uh, so can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so first of all, those plants are taking up maybe 40% of the fertilizer that's dropped on them. And the rest of that is running off with the rain into whatever the nearest body of water is. And um, we want nutrients in our soil. We don't want nutrients in our water. Right. And they're getting the, you know, it's kind of like your potato chip analogy. They're getting basically plant carbohydrates, but they're not getting all the micronutrients that the fungi deliver. So fungi are the only organisms that can strip atoms off of rocks or like off of dirt, which is amazing. And the only reason we can live on earth, the only reason we have terrestrial life is because fungi do this thing where they strip atoms off of rocks and turn it into something bioavailable that plants and animals can digest. Um, and so those corn plants might have the nitrogen and the potassium and you know, some people might add a little boron or try to add these micronutrients into the soil, but the plants without the fungi have little to no capacity to take up those micronutrients. And we don't need to be adding those micronutrients as amendments because they exist in dirt that the plants are in. And if they have the fungi, then we have plants that have magnesium and calcium and cobalt and all these things that we need for hormonal balance and neurotransmission and digestion and our horses need those as well and I think that's a big part of why we see a lot of a lot more lameness mm. uh, health issues now you know people are always talking about how 50 years ago they never had all these micro tears no. and things like that and part of it is you know our arenas and the way we're keeping our horses but another big part of it is nutrition because just like us they're not getting the micronutrients they need to rebuild their tissues so if if i were a local farmer and i'm saying but 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 i've always farmed this way i need to farm this way of course i have to put fertilizer on my fields or i wouldn't get uh the the yields that i need to pay my mortgage and pay my huge debt that I've got because I bought these great big huge machines, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what's the what's the counter argument to that in terms of uh, the no-till and the fert and that we don't need to be uh, dumping all of this fertilizer on the ground? What we need to be doing is uh, nurturing the fungus which is a very foreign idea. I think if, you know, it just says it's a, you know, if you've come from horses are there to jump fences, um, it's as foreign a concept as, and in, and in such a different world from the world that we're now talking about. Well, luckily we have the Gabe Browns and Ray Archuletas and David Johnsons of the world who have shown on land that it works in lots of different places, you know, from the arid Southwest to the wet Northeast, they, 
we can do this without fertilizers and without pesticides. Um, so there's there are examples of biodiverse, healthy living soil farms all over if you look, which is a really real blessing that we probably didn't have 30 years ago. Right. So I think the you know the best way to help shift people is just through example. And then also taking a longer view of it because really we haven't been farming with petrochemicals. Like our farming hasn't been chemical warfare since um, you know, it wasn't that way before World War II. Right. So, you know, folks who think, oh, we've always done it this way, it's more like I I've always done it this way, and maybe my dad or my grandpa did it this way. But um tilling has been around for a while, but the chemical use is pretty new. And um, and if we go further back, the tilling was a lot less invasive. You know, there just what four or five generations ago, the tilling was happening with horses and oxen and wasn't getting nearly as deep. So it was yes. a lot less invasive. Yeah. And you wouldn't have had the compaction from a, a horse team that you would have from uh, some of these big tractors going through. When, yeah. when, you, when you read um, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and he talks about the, this transformation of the farms where more and more acreage was put into corn, and that part of that, it's just that part of that was because after the war, there were stockpiles of nerve agents, nerve gas, and we needed to do something with that. And so it was converted to fertilizer. You think, oh, <laughs> so you know this whole the the development of the industrial agriculture that has occurred since the Second World War. When you start looking at some of the the history of that, it's like, oh my goodness, look at what has driven the choices that have brought us to today, and we've forgotten. Now we've forgotten the wisdom of having a. a mixed crops, you know, having different crops on the, that we rotate through and we've forgotten the wisdom of having animals on the land and using their manure, et cetera, et cetera, to feed those fungus. And the bottom line is that the conventional agriculture isn't working. All these farmers are in deep debt and the soil is getting more and more compacted and um, there are subsidies and crop insurance and things that help keep industrial agriculture limping along but if we're actually looking at what's going on on the ground we're getting fewer and fewer yields every year but they would say it's working because the grocery stores are full what's the the counter to that you know i would go to i go to the grocery store and the produce aisles are are filled with things from all over the planet but at what yeah. cost yeah well you know the um the breadbasket of America is really um, losing a lot of its topsoil. And if you actually go out there, you see that the yields are not are what dropping. they used to. Yeah, and you know, in California, all these farms where a ton of our produce comes from are are drying up and areas are going fallow because there isn't enough water. And um, there's this big push to dam more rivers, which is not the answer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's one of those things that looks 
shiny, you know, the facade looks like, oh, we've got plenty of perfectly shaped <laughs> produce. Yeah. And it's kind of like the horse showing again, where it's like, oh, wow, you can really, you know, jump these fences or, you know, horses can whatever, do all right. these amazing things. And if that horse collapses, well, there are, there are a dozen more fancy Dutch warm bloods in Europe to take the place of the one that just went lame. So, yeah, and and it's really a question of how we want to live, you know? Yes. Like, do we want, do we want our horses to be expendable? Of course not. And do we want our diets to be hollow? Like, if, of course we don't want that. And if you take the that perfectly shaped carrot from the grocery store and actually do an analysis of what's inside it, it has... 20% of the nutritional value that it would have had a hundred years ago. Yes. Isn't that and astounding? Just astounding. And you, when you start reading some of the, the, that literature, it's like, oh my heavens. I mean, we might as well be eating cardboard in some instances, mm -hmm. which the fungus probably could eat, but we can't. <laughs> exactly. Which is why we need them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I like to, I mean, it's inspirational for me also to think that we can have really nutrient-dense foods, and what would it be like to, to live in a world or just to have a diet where our food is packed with nutrients, and we can experience that if we go someplace like Hawaii or, you know, some more equatorial places where they haven't totally wrecked their soil because there's enough rainfall that it just keeps regenerating. Right. Feels so nourished. You know, you eat one mango or something and you're just totally ready for the rest of your day. Whereas here it's like we have to add all the salt and oil and all these things to spruce up our empty food. It's an interesting phrase for it, our empty food. So I want to get back to glomalin because I just thought that was the neatest substance and it's such an important part because it's, it's not just that we want healthy soils so that we can be healthy ourselves, which is important, and that our horses can be healthy, which is also important. So we definitely want that we want food and a lifestyle that's going to nourish a healthy gut biome. We're learning more and more and more about that and that's an exciting field. But we also <clears throat> we also have this very urgent need to sequester carbon. And I, one of the things that, that really disappointed me in Bill Gates' book, his recent book, and the title escapes me, but that's all right, um, is when he was looking at agriculture how he just, it's like he never even really looked at regenerative farming. He didn't put his, his focus there at all. It's like, well, well wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> how can you be talking about ways in which to uh, mitigate the effects of carbon and not look at the ability of, of uh, soils to sequester carbon? So sequestering carbon. What can you share with us on that? Well, carbon is really the stuff of life. We're made of carbon, the plants are made of carbon, the fungi are made of carbon. 
And so if we have dirt, there's some carbon in some mineral forms, but not a whole lot of it, and it's not moving much. So we're not drawing it in from the air. It's not getting put into bodies. It's just static if it's there. But in soil, all the other stuff that makes soil is carbon-based. And again, the fungi are the ones who do that. So the plants um, draw in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and create these carbohydrates and these sugars that feed the fungi. And then the fungi are really the most efficient at turning that carbon that the plants draw down from the atmosphere into the stuff of soil. And so the glomalin especially is made of carbon that came from the atmosphere, which is amazing. Yeah. And <laughs> glomalin, my understanding of it. So if, if, uh, if we think of our own, if we think of our nerves, our nerves have myelin sheaths, which insulate the nerve fibers and keep all of the electrical impulses from just leaking out. So we have uh, these, these uh, our, our nerve fibers are encased in myelin. And the thicker the myelin sheath, the more efficient that nerve fiber becomes. And that's uh, an interesting concept when we start thinking about developing new uh, motor patterns and new uh, habit patterns that uh, when you're training your, uh, your body and learning a new skill, you're, you're firing certain nerve pathways. And through that activity, the nerve cells then secrete what will turn into myelin and the myelin becomes thicker and thicker. So there's, there's that that goes on in our own bodies. And when I heard about glomalin, so the glomalin is this coating around the, 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 the filaments that the fungi put out and that also insulate and protect the fungi. So you think of all of these tiny, this network of uh, filaments that are going through the soil and they're surrounded by the, this glomalin. And when a, a, a filament breaks off, dies off, which it will for whatever reason, that glomalin stays in the soil. And it's an, a remarkably stable substance. So they're saying that uh, it, it won't break down in healthy soil for like 60, 70 years, mm -hmm. which is astounding. And it's what gives soil its structure. So we need the glomalin to have the, that, to hold the, the, the soil particles together with, to give it that aerated structure. So really, really important part of the soil. And when that farm implement comes through and uh, breaks up all of those filaments and destroys the fungus, well, I suppose the, some of that glomalin is going to stay in that soil. But as you say, some of it's going to get washed away and it's not going to have the ability to form that texture that when you're looking at really gorgeous soil, you know, as a gardener, when you see really beautiful soil, it's like, oh, this is, this is a lovely thing. Yeah, so one of the things that happens also when we till is that a lot of the bacteria in the soil, once the fungi are dismembered um, and not functioning as well and all the different 
nutrient cycling pulses that are sort of on this regular cycle get disrupted, the bacteria in the soil sense that there's been a disturbance and their reaction is to eat up a lot of the carbon. And so they'll just go to town and eat up that guamelin. And that's one of the ways that we've sort of been deceived into thinking that tilling works because we'll have a bacterial flush and that will feed some plants. And it's a short because you, you know you till untilled soil once and you get this big flush of the plants that thrive on these more bacterial compounds. And those are the, the grasses as well as the quote unquote weeds not so much the vines and the trees and the what we call later succession species, okay. but the earlier succession species, which are the annuals that are sort of our bread and butter now, as far as the grains um, and the brassicas, those will really, will get like this little shot in the arm from this bacterial flush that happens from breaking up the mycelium and the glomalin structures and the bacteria saying, oh, okay, well, the ship is sinking, so we better eat up all of this carbon that's here and that's been broken up so it's easier to break to, to digest. Whereas before it was harder for them to get into it because the fungi create these really complex molecular strands that bacteria can't always access, but it gets broken up and um, the bacteria have this flush and then we get all these grasses that grow quickly. And that's nice for a year or five, but eventually we're, we run out of nutrients in the soil because we can't just keep having these bacterial flushes without recreating the fungal and glomalin structures that, that they're feeding on. Right. And I suppose we have a, the compounding of that would be you get this rich flush of grasses and then you get a dry spell the grasses brown off, and now you have fire, which we're seeing out west. So you've got a lot of fuel then for kinds of fires that out here on the east coast, it's just so hard to imagine. Fires that devour thousands upon thousands of acres. Yeah, and there's a time and a place for fire, but because our ecosystems have been disrupted so much and fire has been suppressed, and most importantly, soil has been depleted, the fires burn really hot and really ferociously and all that carbon that was in the that dry grass doesn't get to fall down on the earth and be decomposed by fungi it goes up into the atmosphere and it's a carbon emission and then um, there's something that is more of a factor i think for the soils out in your part of the world than here in the in the northeast and that's the the development of that that sort of salty crust on the soils when you have the the overgrazed pastures and the compression and the that the, the minerals get pulled up to the to the surface and they form that hard crust that keeps the water from penetrating so that's another issue that you would be dealing with mm -hmm. so there are a lot of issues with treating soil like it's just dirt <laughs> and, and where you pour fertilizer on it and you churn it up to get rid of the compaction and you throw some fertilizer on it and you grow your crop and you harvest your crop and you 
hope the rain comes when the rain is supposed to and that you can go to the bank at the end of the year and deposit some money into your checking accounts uh, and pay off some of your, your debt. And, but there's a price that we're paying and it's all well and good to push against what you know people are doing. It would be the same as sort of pushing against somebody who's you know riding horses over fences. It's not about pushing against what somebody else is doing or making their choices wrong because that doesn't help. But if as an individual, I want to manage and care for my land in a way that can begin to maximize the health of the land and maximize the carbon that can be sequestered and maximize the healthy biodiversity, what should I be doing? The first thing is that we have to just shift the way we think. So it's not necessarily about doing the exact same thing situation but just knowing that there are these basic tenants that bring us the healthy living soil and the biodiversity that um, sustains us and our horses and our ecosystems and so you know the it's sounds so simple but just covering the earth with mulch and and then planting a diversity of seeds so not just the things that we want to eat or just the grasses we want for our horses, but knowing that all these other plants that may not seem like they directly benefit us are still feeding the soil and feeding pollinators and allowing the grasses and the garden veggies or whatever we do want to harvest to thrive because we have all these other plants out there, these wild native plants, especially, especially um, perennial plants who keep a living root in the soil all year long rather than annual plants that die off each year because being in the soil all year long feeds the fungi and allows the those mycorrhizal fungi to have a place to live. And then when the annuals come back in, they can associate with the fungi that's being kept there by the annuals. And then just understanding that diversity is really what, what allows us to thrive. So a diversity of mulches, so not just wood chips from one type of wood, but wood chips from all sorts of different types of wood, different haze, straws, alfalfa, whatever you want to mulch with, the more diversity you have, the more different kinds of fungi are being fed. And so each of those fungi do different types of carbon cycle or um, nutrient cycling. And the soil builds a lot faster if we have this diversity of plants, diversity of mulches, and then also a diversity of animals. So knowing that we need animals, we need the big grazing animals. And in a healthy wild ecosystem, we also need the predators who move them and the prairie dogs who dig holes and the birds who also you know, move bacteria and fungi miles and spread spores and do all these different things. But if we're just looking at our, our pastures or our yards, it's not that the horses, you know, it's easy to think that the horses are this obstacle to having a healthy pasture, but really they're crucial um, because grasses especially have evolved in concert with grazers. Yes. And so when the horses take one bite of a plant, you know, and they, they take maybe 30 to 50% of its photosynthetic parts, the above ground parts, 
off with that bite, then it sends a signal to the plant to send a flush of nutrients into the soil and feed the fungi. And if that plant is left alone after that bite till it grows back even taller than it was before the bite, then that's how we get a regenerative situation. And in the West, we see a lot of places where grazers have been removed in an effort to bring back wild lands or pasture lands. And it's not really working because those grasses are just stuck with all this standing dead grass that actually needs to be eaten and needs to be trampled. So having the horses there is important just as long as it's not overdone to where they're eating so much of the plant that it can't really photosynthesize and then the root starts to die off. But also it's another thing to think about if it's possible is to also have another type of grazer in there like a goat because then you don't get such horse grazed pastures where they're just eating the young shoots of specific types of plants but you also have say a goat going in and eating some of the the horses don't want to eat and cycling those nutrients and even grazing pattern right and that was, i think that was one of the really interesting things in looking at some of the wilding projects that are going on in europe like the one at uh, the napa state and the conclusion was how important it is to have herbivores and so it's like yes our grazers our horses are not the problem they're part of the solution mm-hmm. And that's, I think it's just uh, uh, hugely encouraging because so often you look at horse properties and the horses are the problem because they're, the land has been so overgrazed and you see this just impoverished, abused landscape that the horses are living in. And you think, oh, you know, horses, they put them in stalls, keep them off the land, <laughs> because look what they do, you know, and you put them out in a nice pasture and, uh, and they trample it down and they break it up and they ruin the pasture. And so, you know, keep them off the pastures. And then you hear, you, you start reading about the wilding projects and the role that herbivores play in maintaining healthy biodiverse pastures. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's really encouraging. Yeah. And so one way to think about it, something that came to mind as you were talking just now is just thinking about biomass, uh, you know, plant biomass. So out here, you know, a hundred acres is going to have about as much biomass as a couple acres where you are. Right. And that biomass can be living grass or it can be mulch or a combination, but as long as it's there holding water and being cycled, then we'll get a more regenerative situation. And so it's really kind of just thinking about how much biomass you need where you are to sustain horses. Yes. And so if you don't, if you have these impoverished pastures, then the first step is just to bring in more biomass, more mulch, more hay. You know, you can get those big round bales of hay, push them over and spread them out and the horses can graze on them and trample them and, that's really a regenerative thing, you know, a regenerative behavior for the horses to be doing, to be eating a little bit, but then also trampling it and getting it to the earth's surface and pooping on it and yeah, just letting it, letting those nutrients. And it is a really important reframing because if you're not thinking about this in terms of regenerating the soil, you put the hay out and the horses eat part of it. And then 
They waste so much hay. They trample it into the ground. This is terrible. How can I feed my horses in a way that they eat the hay instead of wasting it and trampling it into the ground? And yet you're saying, oh, let's look at that in a very, with a very different lens. Let's look at that as, yes, they're eating some of the hay and the rest of that hay is serving a really important function. Totally. And it's got to be doing that because if they're eating all of it, then our pastures are not going to be in such a great way. Yeah. That they are not wasting the hay by any stretch of the imagination. They are just part of that whole cycling through of and restoring the organic matter and the seeds and everything else that's in that hay back into your soil. And then we can share, you know, that. And I'm out in the field. I mean, the other night I was out with the goats and we uh, startled what must have been a very newborn fawn, which is great fun to see. But, you know, when I see the deer coming up into the fields, I don't think, oh, they're eating my horse's grass. This is terrible. Drive them away. There's plenty of grass to share. And I don't think about when I see the rabbits out in the field, I don't think, oh, they're eating the horse's grass, get, you know, get rid of all these rabbits. It's, they're an important part of the role that herbivores play in maintaining healthy, healthy pastures. And we don't have to push against our neighbors. We can include our neighbors in our healthy stewardship of the land. Each and every one of us is doing an important role that nobody else can do. Yeah. So gut bacteria and fungi that the deer are bringing are different. You know, there might be some overlap, but they're also different than what the horses are bringing. You know, and the goats and cows have rumens and horses don't have rumens. And so that's a totally different situation that they're bringing. Just the behaviors, like the way that rabbits root around is different than the way horses trample. And all of those things are important and necessary. Yes. Yes. And they are all part of the delight of going out into the fields with the horses and seeing a healthy natural world, which is sort of brings us full circle back to, you know, why we have horses and why horses are, I think, important ambassadors for helping us to understand what each of us can do to help mitigate the climate change crisis. Because the more we understand this, the more we can model on our own, the land that we are, have under our care, we can model good land management. We can make choices in terms of the foods we raise, the foods we buy, et cetera, et cetera. And we politically can push for those choices that support regenerative agriculture that support better land management, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to understand first, you know, why we should care. You know, why should we care if there's healthy fungus in the soil? I mean, because most of us think of fungus, ooh, ick, you know, either either it's the mushrooms we buy in the grocery store or it's the the fungus, the mold that grows around the the rim of the bathtub or something with but fungus in the soil doesn't sound like something we would want. And yet it's something we very much need. So. Yeah, we're here 
because of it. The fungi in our bodies and the fungi in the soil are what allows us to live on land. Yeah. And it's, it's just really fun and astounding when we start looking at some of the discoveries that have been made in the last 20, 30 years about the association between fungus and plants. And we're just beginning to scratch that surface. And, you know, on so many levels, I hope we figure out the uh, ways to mitigate the climate change crisis because uh, we have some really cool discoveries still to be made about how this planet works and how intelligent it is. And it would be a shame if we crashed the whole system before we really had a chance to appreciate and understand that. So we mustn't crash it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's really, um, all of this can be so much fun. You know, yes. we're in a dire situation on earth and it's easy to get disheartened. But what brings me a lot of hope is that the solutions are fun. You know, like horse keeping in a wild biodiverse pasture ecosystem is a lot more fun than a dirt a lot. Being able to to forage wild foods and to see wild animals is like, you know, is exactly what we want to be doing. And just like all these animals and all these plants are doing something beneficial for the ecosystem, um, just by being themselves, we can also benefit the the ecosystem just by being ourselves, whether it's through better horse keeping or gardening, or maybe we're not on land, but we can, but we like working with people. And so we can do advocacy for creating organic parks rather than spraying pesticides and herbicides in our cities um, or creating root gardens or whatever it is, like whatever we're interested in, we can use it for something regenerative and life bringing. And I think, you know, that the idea that it is fun, and, and that's really a great note to end on, that, you know, we can get very pulled down and depressed when you start looking at the headlines. And you start hearing about, you know, we have eight, nine, ten harvests left, or whatever grim number it is. It's like, ah, that's no time at all. But when you start saying the alternatives, it can be really fun. It's like, yes, exactly. So, and that will draw us because pushing against and trying to solve this from a place of fear isn't going to be how we solve the climate change crisis. But finding solutions that bring us joy and then make us laugh and make us smile, that's how we're going to solve this. So very neat, very neat. Yeah. You know, fear is the fear and scarcity and competition mindset is what got us here. Um, yes. But I'm sure you know with all of the positive reinforcement work that you do that our most creative state of mind comes from play and joy and fun. And so if we're gonna have creative solutions and new new ways of being, it's gonna come from that joyful place. Yes. Because that, that old cliche of you don't solve a problem from the mindset that created the, the problem. So fear created the problem. Now let's solve it with joy and play. Yeah. 
great way to end. So thank you immensely for, for sharing and, and taking this time. I happen, I'm one of those people that loves soil and, and I've always loved soil. So uh, to talk to somebody else who likes soil as well is always a pleasure. Seems like an odd thing to be saying, you know, I really love soil, but it's true. <laughs> oh, it's such a, it brings me so much joy and glee to talk to a horse person who's into soil. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. <laughs> you are very welcome. You are very, very welcome. We thought we were done. We were wrapping up with our thank yous and our goodbyes when Navona happened to say, we didn't talk about compost. Well, of course we had to talk about compost. So we kept going. And that's what we'll be talking about in part three of our conversation. It's an important piece of the soil regeneration puzzle. And of course, for horse people, it's a very important piece because unless we're keeping our horses out on pasture 24-7, most of us tend to have a manure pile that has to be dealt with. So we're going to be talking about some ideas for generating some really good compost out of those manure piles. Remember, we can make a difference in the climate change crisis. And together, we're learning how. <laughs>